Hi there, and welcome back to the Energy Sector Heroes podcast. My name is Michelle Fraser, and every week I will speak with incredible people who share their lessons, experiences, and stories from their time spent in the energy sector. Hi there, and welcome back again to this week's episode. If you're new to the show, then please take a second to subscribe and even consider sharing the show with just one other person. This week, I am joined by Darren Sutherland. Darren is an incredible vice president at Bohr Drilling. Darren, would you like to introduce yourself, please? Yes, certainly. So uh, like you said, Darren Sutherland, I'm currently the vice president for Bohr Drilling, looking after Europe and Africa. And I also serve as the chairman of the IEDC, which is the International Association of Drilling Contractors in the North Sea region. Wow. Really? I didn't know that, actually. How did you get involved with that? With the IEDC? Yeah. It's something I've been involved in for, for many years. I have served as chairman previously, and usually it's part of uh, the role that the head of the the drilling company um, in Aberdeen, so whether you're with Bohr, Valaris or Noble, any of the drilling contractors, an expectation that you participate in this industry body to help improve and advance the, the drilling sector uh, in, in the North Sea region. Okay, that's interesting. So do you get a lot of new recruits every year then? We have primary members which consist of the drilling contractors but we are increasing the number of associate members that that uh, that join the the trade organizations so we have a lot of service companies that uh, come along and we we run meet and greets twice a year to encourage networking and then we have some working groups that the various members can participate in related to hr training competence hse etc Okay, because I was going to ask you, what is the benefits of joining that institution? Yeah, so I mean, uh, I guess one of the, the benefits that some of the projects I'm working on right now within IDC, we are representing our portion of the industry in front of governments in both Holyrood and in Westminster, working towards improving the market conditions here, because obviously, as you're probably aware, the the government taxation scheme that's in place right now, EPL2, is causing uh, quite a significant impact in the investment in the region, which flows down to ourselves because if the oil companies aren't investing in the North Sea, they're not drilling wells. If they're not drilling wells, then it means our rigs get stuck. So we've been working to try and lobby government to change their approach. The other major project that we're working on is a industry charter for mental health. We held an event last month at the Chester Hotel where we had over 200 representatives from across industry pulled together to discuss the issues of mental health in in our sector. And uh, we're forming a charter to try and move forward, try and create momentum within industry to, to affect cultural change on how we view mental health and how we deal with it with the overall aim of improving conditions for employees in the sector. Okay, that is a really good and worthy cause. So what was the some of the major lessons learned that came out from that initiative? I think lessons, there's lots, lots of lessons learned, but the kind of key things that came out to me was that there's a lot of good work going on in pockets across the sector. 
you know, and as an industry, we've always been very successful when we join together as an industry to develop either joint practices or working standards that everybody can can adhere to. And that's you know something that the North Sea sector we've been very good at and actually has resulted in lots of good industry practices being enrolled out across the globe. You know, if you look at step change in safety, timeout for safety, the drops campaign, the, the, the UK safety case regime, for example, is something that's been adopted to a certain extent across the globe as well. So that was that was one of the key things for me was that coming together and there was a definite feeling of a desire to come together as industry in the room that we'll be pushing as we, as we move forward with this charter. And the other kind of key thing for me was that there's obviously a lot of third sector help available and they were very keen and they were very quite vocal about their desire to join industry in this, this mental health campaign that we're pushing. Okay. No, because mental mental health is quite a big thing in the in the well in the energy sector, probably in other sectors as well. Just now, yes, it is indeed. I mean, we're, we're focusing on it from a energy sector side, but I think the truth of the matter is that mental health is a it's not just an energy sector issue; it's it's a global issue. Although we do have some very specific challenges within within oil and gas, and obviously we hope to try and address that with with what we're doing. No, that sounds amazing, actually. So how did you actually get started in the energy sector? Well, I'm entering my 30th year now in, in the sector. So I, I grew up in a small seaside village in the north of Scotland, not too far from Embergordon, where they used to bring the rigs in when they were getting worked on and getting stacked. And very close to Nig, where they used to build most of the platforms for the North Sea. So I've been in and around the sector since a, a young boy and when it came time to to leave school I, uh, I stumbled upon a prospectus from Harriet Watt University for a, a course in offshore mechanical engineering which just I was thoroughly attracted to so that, that's what I did I left school and went to Harriet Watt studied offshore mechanical engineering and from there joined the the drilling industry with, with Santa Fe back in 1994 Okay. So why did you pick mechanical engineering over the different types of engineering to do? What attracted you to it? I think um, I've always liked tinkering with things. My mum was always getting on to me because I was taking TVs and stuff apart when I was a, a a young child. So I think I've always had a bit of a mechanical mind. But I think, you know, going to school every day on the bus and seeing these huge structures and all the equipment that went along with it was someone that really attracted me. I also did work on farms and around mechanical equipment. So mechanical is always something that I've, uh, I've had an interest in. The offshore aspect was just a completely different challenge, though. Not only being able to design mechanical equipment, but to put it to work in some of the most challenging environments in the world was something that uh, that sparked my interest and, in, in, you know, attracted me to the, to the offshore industry. Okay. That sounds amazing. So have you had any role models within your career and why did you find them inspirational? I've had quite a few role models. I've been very fortunate. I've had several mentors who've helped me through my career and and kind of guided me. I guess my my first mentor was a guy called Danny McAleese, who um, was a senior tool pusher on on my first rig. And what Danny did with me, Danny pushed me to kind of go beyond learning just the basics. So my early career 
was as a trainee drilling engineer, which meant I spent three weeks offshore as a rig crew member, roused about, roughneck, etc. Two weeks in the office as an engineer and a week off. And when I was offshore, you did a lot of manual labor work, but Danny was always pushing me to to learn more. So if I was working with with a boat and we were taking tubulars off the boat, it wasn't a case of just do the mechanical operation. He would always push me, say, what type of tubular is it? What size, what shape, what weight? Why do we use that particular tubular? And he was very keen on pushing, learning greater knowledge or sorry, obtaining greater knowledge rather, rather than just going through a process of basic learning. And he was always keen to give me additional projects above and beyond what I was doing during my 12-hour shift. So he would, he would have me come up to the office and work on time analysis or uh, looking at equipment failure. So he, he was a great inspiration. And that was something that I learned from an early day is that, you know, you need to be constantly learning. You can't just do the, do the minimum. If you want to get ahead and succeed, you've got to put in a little bit more effort than just, just the base level. So he was, he was great for that. Okay. That sounds like great advice, actually. How do you go above and beyond what your job actually wants you to do? You know, is there any tips that you can share about how you would go about doing that? Look, I think you have to be passionate about what you're doing you, you, because you're going to have to start looking at, you know, so starting out as a, as a young mechanical engineer, it'd be very easy just to focus in on, on mechanical engineering. But what I've always tried to do is take a step back and look at the bigger picture beyond just mechanical engineering at the time. You're looking at, okay, the well development, the field development, the operator involved. And then you start stepping even further back and looking at the overall industry and learning about the overall industry, what makes it tick, what influences the the decisions that are made. So I think it's always good to, to, to learn to take a big picture view on things and read as much as you can about what it is that you you're you're doing. That sounds maybe sounds a bit trivial, but I think it's learning and, and always trying to expand your knowledge is uh, is one of the key things that helps you kind of go above and beyond in, in specific roles. If that okay. makes sense. Yeah, it does actually. It does. So what is the most challenging thing about your current role then? Challenging thing about the current role. So the, the role I hold, I'm not so much involved in the technical aspects of the business anymore. And most of my time is spent dealing with people and people issues. And I think that's something that we, well, certainly back in the day, we didn't do a very good job at training within the universities is, is the people skills. And people refer to them as the soft skills. I would actually categorize them as the hard skills because I find it's very difficult to to learn to manage people appropriately, you know, learning skills such as empathy, emotional intelligence, communication. Communication is is something that we all do, but to do it to do it properly and to be able to communicate clearly and concisely to people at different levels within an organization and from potentially different cultures and different languages is something that's a real challenge. But as you go further up the, the, the chain of command, it's something that becomes more and more important is, is the ability to, to handle and manage people in an appropriate manner. Okay. So how do you go about ensuring that you're effectively communicating properly? Uh, great question. Practice, uh, lots of practice. I have taken courses. I, I did a master's degree about ten years ago, and I chose to, to take on a, one of the modules in in public speaking. 
communication. So learning how to communicate, again, reading, reading about emotional intelligence, learning about myself, what makes myself tick, how I think, because if, if I know how I think and how I process things, then it, like, it helps me to uh, to communicate as clearly as possible. So again, it's just, it's something that comes with practice, but you've got to choose to practice it because I find that in a lot of places, we don't actually sit down and teach our employees communication skills or listening skills. I mean, listening is is a big part of communication, right? You need to understand the message that you're being told. And if you don't understand it, you need to realize that you need to ask questions to make sure you're clear. But again, it's, it's just practicing those skills. And, and if you aren't being taught it, then take the time to learn about it. There's plenty of good uh, information on the, on the internet these days. Yeah, there is. Because I think of the learning how to communicate effectively. It's quite hard, actually. It's not an easy thing to do. No, it's not. And I think, you know, like I said, I've been in industry 30 years and I st- even now I still have challenges making sure it's, that I'm clear and that I'm understanding appro- uh, correctly as well. So, yeah, it takes time and it takes practice, but it's it's a key, key skill, especially if you would like to be a, a senior manager one day and hold a level of responsibility. Okay. That's excellent advice, actually. So, because you're now a senior manager manager, and you used to be on the tools before, do you miss being hands-on or do you not so much prefer being doing the management route? I think it's just different phases in life. I, w- I will be honest. I was on a rig last week here in the North Sea. And yeah, a lot of memories come back just by the smells and the sounds that you experience when you're offshore and brings back a lot of good memories of working on rigs and I thoroughly enjoyed my time there but I think as, as you grow within your career and as you seek if, you, if you're seeking new challenges then you know you, you still you still have fond memories of the time on the tools but um, I, I do thoroughly enjoy what I'm, I'm doing right now it's different different challenges, like I say, and it's uh, different skills that I'm learning, and I, I I enjoy learning constantly. So, yeah, I, whilst I miss it, I'm I'm glad I'm doing what I'm doing now. So, was it a conscious decision to to travel, go up the career ladder to the level that you are just now? Is it something that you always wanted to do? Yes, yes, it has has been something I've always wanted to do. I think when I experienced my first downturn back in around about 2000. I mean, I'd been working predominantly in the in the area of operations and engineering and then seeing just the nature of the business and just nature of the world in general, I realized very quickly that I needed to expand my skill set beyond just the pure technical skills. And at that point, I made a decision that I wanted to, to do my best in industry, but do my best for myself and, and see how far I could get on the, on the career ladder. Um, and I've been very fortunate to to have had a lot of great opportunities uh, put in front of me, which which I've taken on and been able to do well at, and that's got me where I am today. So, yeah, it's it, it was a conscious decision. I think it's it's look, you, you decide very early on in your career what you want to do, and some people choose to follow the management route, others choose to be technical experts, and you know that's that's a great career as well. So that, I don't think there's a right or wrong path. It's just you know what. What is it that excites you and motivates you to get out of bed in the morning? Okay. Did you ever find that when you were presented with a new opportunity that you were maybe hesitant or maybe, you know, a bit apprehensive about the challenge ahead before you accepted to start the new challenge that you were offered? You uh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think any time change is involved in, in 
in your career, in your life, there's always apprehension and maybe some anxiety as well. But what I've learned over the years and the benefit of having some some really good mentors is that, you know, what this anxiety and apprehension about taking on a new role or moving to a new country or, or moving to a new organization, everybody has that. It's just comes down to how you manage it yourself i think i think it's it's okay it's okay to be apprehensive about a new role or a new company it's just part of life is it's almost you know this fear of the unknown right but i've learned over the years to, to embrace that fear or that, that anxiety and harness it and, and use it to motivate me to to tackle the new challenge so i think it's something that can be expected i mean it's that's moving or, or changing no, I agree, actually. I do agree. So is there anything that you still want to achieve in your career? You know, I think I would like to to continue growing within the industry. Uh, I'd like to see, you know, could I make it to CEO level? I think I'd like to continue to try and pursue that, that option. I've had a very full career. I've I've travelled to all of the continents. I've, I've visited. I think it's, I'm up to about 68 countries. I've visited now with my job. I've met a lot of incredible people. Experienced a lot of incredible things. So, I, you know, I I'm, like to continue to grow. But you know, like I say, I've had a very fulfilling career till now. So, yeah, let's let's see what the future brings. Yeah. So, do you think working abroad has helped your career? Uh, definitely. It definitely has. I think the technical aspects are the same. There's some different challenges, but drilling is, is, is drilling. What I've learned from working overseas is how to understand different cultures, how to uh, do business in different countries that brings lots of complexity. Well, it's, a good, it's expanded my skill set for sure. And like I say, the, the key one for me is, is being able to deal with different cultures because at the end of the day, it's... It, it's, it's people that's behind a lot of what we do. And a key aspect of being successful is being able to understand how other people think in different, you know, different parts of the world, whether it's you know, through their language, through their, their, their national culture, whether it's through their religion, whatever. It's really important to understand these things so that you can get the most from your teams and, and give the most back to your teams as well. Okay. Did you ever find, because I've worked abroad myself quite a lot, do you ever find that you pick up new skills on how to engineer different? Or do you find that in the drilling in- industry that everything's more or less done the same way? Look, there's a lot of standardization just because of the nature of the business. You know, we have some very high safety standards and generally, you know, generally wherever you go, it's the same safety standards. So the processes are the same. But yeah, there's there's definitely different techniques and different skills that you learn. You know, I've I've been in the uh, the mouth of the Orinoco Delta in Venezuela where you've you've had eight foot of water and very high currents, lots of different challenges there. And you know, then I've been obviously in here in the North Sea and been up on the Magnus platform, the very north of the North Sea. It's you know, you've have hundred year storms and howling winds and completely different challenges. So yeah, you definitely do learn different skills on how to operate the technical and engineering side might be you know, pretty much the same, but in terms of operations, you, you, you will have different challenges, logistical challenges, which is uh, always a lot of fun. You know, how do you get equipment into a jungle or the desert versus uh, the middle of the, the North Sea or the, uh, the Mediterranean, for example? Okay, interesting. Have you ever encountered any career disasters and how have you handled them? 
career disasters. Think of many career disasters. I've had some serious challenges uh, technically where things have gone wrong, where I've dropped drill pipe down a hole without without having any safeguards in place. But it was very early on in my career. I think I'm, I think I've been quite fortunate not to have had many career disasters. But you know, a lot of career challenges. You know, if I've been with organisations that have been bought and sold, which has resulted in me in becoming redundant, for example, which I wouldn't say is a disaster, but it's definitely something that's you know difficult and present you with some challenges. And how I've handled that is just gone out and, and uh, learned more skills. And I think if, if I can give one piece of advice to anybody looking to come into industry or any young folks coming out of school is learn as many skills as you can, have, have as many strings to your bow as possible. That allows you then to transfer from, from one industry to another or one, one job type to another. You know, So for example, when I was made redundant in so around about 2014, I went from drilling to work for a services company that did hydraulic hydraulic uh, products and hydraulic hoses and fittings, hydraulic systems. So it's completely different to drilling. But because I'd learned the skills of uh, business development, uh, sales and marketing contracts, as well as being a drilling engineer, I could transfer into that particular role with, with relative ease. Obviously, I had to learn sector expertise, but the fact that I could do business development work and contracts help me to to make a change into a completely different sector from where I've been previously. So le- learning as many skills as possible, I think, uh, helps smooth out any any issues like that. Okay. That leads on to my next question, actually. In your opinion, what makes an outstanding hire if you were going to hire a graduate or a senior? When I am recruiting for people, I am looking for attitude. We have the ability to train and to help people skill up. I, mean, I can I can teach people to do the, whatever they need to do for the job we hire them for, but I'm looking for the right attitude, the right approach. People who really want to, to be part of our business or to do the job that, role that we're offering. Because I think with, with the right attitude and the right approach, you can overcome technical aspects, the challenges of, of a new job, a new industry. So definitely the you know, folks who've got the right attitude, I can do, want to do attitude is what I look for from, from hiring people. Okay. And how do you know if that person's got that type of attitude? During the interview process, I, I tend not to focus on the technical aspects. By the time they're sitting in front of me, they've already been screened for, you know, do they have the, the ability to, to learn and to to do the technical side of things. So my, so my conversation tends to be around the, the individual themselves and who they are, what they're looking for in life. So I think over, over the years of doing that many, many times, it almost a gut instinct, a feel, you, you know immediately when somebody's nervous or where somebody's lying or when somebody's genuinely excited about a job. So I, I've, I've learned over the years to, to kind of filter that. But somebody who, who's coming in, who's got the right attitude will come in, they'll, they'll be prepared. They know who they're coming in to speak to, they know the business, they know what they want. Maybe they've got some vision about where they'd like to go. And sometimes people are just quite honest and say, look, I don't really know what it what it's going to look like, but I'm really keen to be here. And, and that's that's also a good thing. You know, say, saying you don't know is also a, a good quality. Okay. 
When you're hiring somebody, do you normally typically have two interviews, three interviews? It really depends on the role. Usually we have an initial HR screening. And that's where you know we'll look at their CV or their educational background. And then we will generally do some of the psychometric testing just to see the individual's personality type and their ability to, you know, to um, handle simple mathematical and grammatical questions. And then if it's a very technical specific role, they'll probably get interviewed by a subject matter expert, you know, so whether that be the technical superintendent, the HSE manager or the HR department before they would then probably come on to me for a kind of final, a final assessment. That's generally how, how we've done, how we do it here at BOR, but that's how I've done it in the past as well. Okay. It's quite a thorough interview then, interviewing process. It is very thorough. And what we found is it, it's turned out to be very effective at BOR. We have quite a lean operation and we tend to, well, we, we always look to hire the best people we can. And this thorough interview process kind of helps to ensure that we get you know people with, like I say, with the right attitude, drive and desire and the right technical capabilities and also the right personality for, for what we're going to put them into. Because the drilling industry, like a lot of industry, isn't, isn't for everybody. And uh, it, it brings a lot of challenges and you know it can be a lot of hard work at times and as long as people are aware of that coming in, then then they'll be successful. Why do you think that the drilling industry is not for everybody then? It's, when you come into operations within the drilling industry, we're, we're definitely a 24-7, 365 business. And within operations, it's not uncommon that you're getting woken up at 2, 3 in the morning to deal with equipment failures. Unfortunately, occasionally you need to deal with either people taking sick or having to come home uncompassionate or thankfully very rarely these days uh, people getting injured so that kind of constant on-call lifestyle is 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 not something that everybody uh, is up for and sometimes it can be very fast-paced as well and requires a lot of on-the-spot decision making and responsibility so if that's something that appeals then then you'll love it but if not then you know it's it's, it's definitely not not uh, like I said not for, it's not for everyone Okay, so what typically you were mentioning before that it can be quite challenging uh, working in the drilling industry. What what are the major challenges that you can come up and face? Um, predominantly, depending on the level of the industry you're you're in. I mean, so if you're working on on a rig, then the the challenges you face is you know exposure to to the climate. So whether you're in the the heat of the the Middle East or whether you're in the cold of the North Sea. You know that that's that's a challenge for people. You're working 12-hour shifts or 21 or 28 days at a time, which can be quite demanding physically. And then obviously the work itself offshore is is uh, can be labor intensive, and you have to be focused all the time. So th- those are all challenges. And then when you have an equipment issue, when the rig goes on to what we call downtime, then you know we we have to work very quickly to get the equipment repaired and back online for reasons of either safety or operational efficiency. And, and as you're probably aware, within the drilling industry, you know, we can command quite high day rates for our rigs. So literally seconds lost become you know, hundreds or thousands of dollars lost per, you know, per second. So you, you have to be able to get equipment back online and that uh, brings with it its own challenges. And then when you're shore base, obviously ha- having to deal with 
with those issues as well, but then having to deal with people uh, having to provide a, a, a good service to your client, who sometimes can be very demanding, it, it all all different challenges that, that you can be faced with, as well as the day-to-day burden of running a, a what, what can be a high-value business. Okay, so you have to really be good at troubleshooting as well as uh, concentrating on the drilling aspects. Absolutely, absolutely. And that's one of the things I love about our, our particular industry is a lot, of the, a lot of the problems sound like the same, but there's always a quirk. You know, we've got some great people that work in the industry who are fantastic at troubleshooting. And troubleshooting itself is a great skill to learn because, like I said, it's something you could quite easily transfer to elsewhere. Yeah, good, being good at troubleshooting, thinking on your feet, is definitely something that, uh, that we look for. Do you think of being a good troubleshooter is something that you can learn or do you really think that you would have to have the aptitude to do that? I think it's definitely something you can learn. Yes, for sure. There's people who, who are naturally more talented in that area, but I think we can all learn troubleshooting. We, we do it all the time. And again, it's just one of these things with practice. You start to learn the, the techniques of, of getting to the root cause of a problem and then coming up with solutions. It, it, takes, it takes practice. You don't learn it all. Uh, you certainly don't learn, don't learn it all from a textbook. You need to be put in at the deep end, shall we say. And that's when you really start to learn quite quickly how to how to resolve issues. Do you think it's quite important as an engineer to be go offshore or on site to view what you are designing or maintaining rather than staying in the office all the time? Personal opinion is yes. I think it's always good that you have or have had some kind of hands-on experience. You know, we we have seen equipment come offshore and you think you know, why, how did they come up with this design? It doesn't work. So I think there's there's definitely a lot to be gained by getting out and you know looking at the environment and really understanding it. So yeah, I, I definitely uh, I definitely think there's 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 advantage to to those guys that are getting out into the field and getting getting on the tools if they can, or even just standing and watching what's going on. That's uh, for me uh, definitely an advantage. I truly actually agree with you, your last reply. I think it's important that you get offshore you get offshore or on site. Because sometimes you don't even you can design something but how it's designed might not even be how it is in reality. It might not work. Right. I do believe that actually. What keeps you motivated when things get tough? What keeps me motivated? I get an incredible amount of support from my family. They keep me motivated when when times are down. I've I've got a good network of people that uh, that are around me and support me. So I think having having that network is is something that helps with the motivation levels. Uh, also having either colleagues or a mentor to talk things through is always good because what what I found is that a lot of the challenges, a lot of the issues you face, and when you get to a moment of you know feeling down you're not the first person to feel that way and there is a way out there is a solution and things will will come right so i think having the people around me i've had some fantastic people around me in my career who've who've really helped me through challenging and difficult times but definitely having to support my family has been a huge one no i agree family is important so what advice would you give anybody any young graduates looking to come into the drilling industry Look, I, I would I would highly recommend it. It's if if you come in with the right attitude and you've got a desire to learn, to grow, particularly to travel. I think there's there's incredible opportunities out there. 
the drilling industry is it's fast paced. There's lots of challenges, and you can learn some incredible skills that are, in my opinion, transferable to other industries quite easily if that's what you decide to do in the future. But you know, I've I've had a I've had a great thirty years in industry. Like I say, I've travelled extensively. I've met some absolutely incredible, just beautiful people uh, across the entire globe who I still call friends to this day. And I think that's something that is in the drilling sector that we, that we we offer. Uh, the fact that drilling rigs are mobile and do get moved around the world on a, on a regular basis allows that to to happen. But you know, you need to be prepared that uh, it can be difficult, it can be challenging, and it's maybe it's not as sexy as rocket science or or it's the stuff at Tesla, but it's all valuable and and good engineering, and it's a, it's a very important role that uh, that we play. I agree. Actually, it is imp- the drillers are quite uh, quite important actually. Touching on the the fact that you were saying it wasn't maybe quite as, as you know sexy as it, maybe other engineering positions. Being on the drill floor, it's it's quite tough. It actually isn't it. It's quite a tough job. Yeah, it it, it is. It is. Uh, it is a tough job. We thanks to advances in technology over the years, it has become easier. But the, you know that the process of drilling is 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 very is, I don't want to say agricultural, but it's it's very mechanical in nature. You know you're essentially taking a piece of heavy steel and 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 grinding up rock to make a make a hole in the ground, and then you're you're casing it with with steel pipe and uh, and bringing in production. But it, it is difficult, and you know we operate under very strict safety procedures. But it's you know it can be it can be a very dangerous job as well as as we've seen in the past and obviously we we work daily to ensure that we never see the likes of Macondo or Piper Alpha again but yeah it, it it can be very difficult but I think that's part of the that's part of the attraction for me is that it is a challenge it is you know it can be on the on the on the edge of dangerous and I think that's something that excites excites me and excites uh, quite a lot of the guys in the industries is that kind of you know, you're out there, especially if you're in the middle of North Sea in, in the middle of winter and it's dark and it's, you know, 70, 80 mile an hour winds and 15 meter waves. There's something quite exciting about that. Or maybe Perfect. maybe I'm maybe I'm just weird. <laughs> I was going to ask you, actually, when you were drilling, you must have you must have been there when when they finally, you know, hot oil. How does that even feel? You know, you it's it's not like you see on on some of these movies where there's oil gushing out everywhere. Yeah, I thought you, you, I would think it would be, but maybe I'm yeah. just uh, fantasizing. No, we 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 keep everything under control, and actually, we don't physically see any oil coming back in any sizable quantities. You know, we you know where everything is kept under control by the use of the drilling mud and then casing. And then we put the completion equipment in the well before we perforate it to bring the oil online and it goes straight into the production train from there. So yeah, you don't you don't get to see that Bruce Willis style oil gushing out all over the rig floor, unfortunately. Or fortunately rather. But it's it's always good and it, we don't do it as much as we used to in the in the old days, uh, primarily for environmental concerns, is you know when and, and a lot of the older days when we we're having some of the big finds, they would do a well test and you'd see the flare burning, some of the excess gas and hydrocarbons that came to surface. That was always a sight to behold. Yeah, we don't we don't do that anymore. It's uh, clearly not great for the environment. No, 
No, it's not. <laughs> Thanks for answering that question, actually. That was quite insightful, actually. It's not how I thought it was, was, was going to be. So if you could turn back time, would you change anything? Uh, no. No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't change anything. I, I've learned an, an incredible amount. And like I say, uh, the industry has been good to me in terms of what I've been able to see and experience in the world. If it wasn't for the oil industry and joining the Santa Fe back when I did, I would never have met my wife uh, in Venezuela. I wouldn't have had all the all the experiences I've had. So no, wouldn't change a thing. Okay, that's really good to hear. Okay, so that's all the questions I have today. I would like to thank Darren for your time. It was really appreciated, actually. So that brings us to the end of another episode. Thanks for listening and see you next week. That brings us to the end of another episode. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, I'd like to gently encourage you to leave a five-star rating wherever you listen to podcasts and share the show with another person. You can also follow me on LinkedIn or via my website, www.michellefraserconsultancy.com. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.